Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. living through times of great uncertainty and stress. Just as we saw light at the end of the COVID tunnel, we now find ourselves back in the darkness. The psychological impacts of this pandemic are being felt acutely. We live in fear of losing a loved one to the virus, a friend being killed by the police because of the color of their skin. Parents and kids exhausted of being cooped up together are suddenly told school will be online this fall. Millions who have lost their jobs are terrified by having to choose between buying food or paying the rent. Essential workers are stressed by the lack of effective protective equipment. The list of legitimate things to worry about has grown nearly endless. Stress takes many forms and can manifest a myriad of symptoms. At its worst, stress can elicit a toxic shock to our system that changes who we are at a very fundamental level. During covid Acts of abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction are all on the rise. While the stay-at-home orders help stem the tide of the pandemic, there is mounting evidence that it led to violence in the home becoming more severe and frequent. When we think of environmental factors that contribute to health problems like asthma, the impacts of stress from abuse, neglect, and dysfunction are often overlooked. In the last decade, our understanding of both adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress as adults has evolved. In large part, this is due to the work of Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, an award-winning physician, researcher, and advocate dedicated to changing the way our society responds to childhood trauma. Dr. Burke-Harris was appointed as California's first ever Surgeon General by Governor Gavin Newsom in January 2019. As California's Surgeon General, Nadine has set a bold goal to reduce adverse childhood experiences also known by the acronym ACE or ACEs, by half in one generation. Dr. Burke Harris's career has been dedicated to serving vulnerable communities and combating the root causes of health disparities. After completing her residency at Stanford, she founded a clinic in one of San Francisco's most underserved communities, Bayview Hunters Point. It was there that Burke Harris observed that despite the implementation of national best practices, For immunizations, asthma, obesity treatment, and other preventive health measures, her patients still faced outsized risks for poor health, development, and behavioral outcomes. In 2011, she founded the Center for Youth Wellness and subsequently grew the organization to be a national leader in the effort to advance pediatric medicine, raise public awareness, and transform the way society responds to children exposed to adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress. Dr. Burke Harris's TED Talk, How Childhood Trauma Affects Health Across the Lifetime, has been viewed more than six million times. Her book, The Deepest Well, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity, was called Indispensable by the New York Times. I start by asking Nadine what it's like to be Surgeon General during the time of COVID. 
It's a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a new role within government. It also feels really important because in this moment, I think a lot of people are recognizing the importance of public health and it's coming to a new level of awareness for a lot of people. And so I think that creates a lot of opportunities that I'm really grateful for. We all say this, but we kind of take our health for granted, Nadine. We we go about our lives, and, and this has been such a shock to the system that it's nearly all that we think about now. For a lot of us, we're not just in this moment of COVID-19, which is it has been this incredible health crisis, but it's also showing all the cracks in our safety net. It's showing how much there are so many people who can't live without a paycheck. It's showing how many folks are on the front lines. It's showing how dependent we are on healthcare. It's also showing how mental health is a huge issue, the, the stress of the pandemic. And it's also showing up in the racial disparities, right? When we look and see that black and brown folks are dying at a higher rate, like there's a pandemic that comes across our country, across the globe. And yet in the United States, what we see is that black and brown people are dying at a substantially greater rate than others. When I see the racial disparities around COVID, I feel outraged every day. And I think about my kids and everything that I'm working for to ensure that they live in a state and in a country where they simply have equal opportunity. Right now, I'm not asking for a leg up. I'm not asking for any kind of, you know, anything special. I'm simply asking for equal opportunity for my children to be healthy and well, for my children to have their God-given right to grow up and make of themselves whatever it is that they will make of themselves. And so from that standpoint, it's been a terribly challenging time, if I'm speaking honestly. Because, you know, we're all working around the clock fighting COVID. And then we also have to be fighting all of these other pieces, fighting racial discrimination, structural inequalities, all of these different pieces. And for me, the fight has never felt more important. And it feels like we're right on the front lines. How did you end up getting into the medical profession? Tell us about that journey. So I wanted to be a doctor and not just a doctor, a pediatrician. So when I was five years old, I wrote a letter to my pediatrician and I said, why is it that when, when I want to move my toe, it moves? So I've always been fascinated by science and medicine. My mom is a nurse. My dad is a biochemist. So I would say it's in the DNA, except for none of my four brothers are remotely interested in science. But I've always been really passionate about science and medicine. I will never forget when I was in high school, I was maybe 14. My aunt, who is a physician, took me to a Black woman in medicine conference. And it was in San Francisco. And... I remember walking into a ballroom and seeing a room with 1,500 
Black women in medicine. And it kind of blew my mind. I've had a lot of people along the way who have lifted me up and supported me. But literally from the my very, very earliest ages, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor. And I also knew that I always wanted to serve vulnerable populations. Uh, that was also just part of my DNA. My My dad is super, 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 super Catholic. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and really raised us with those values. We're here to, you know, heal those who are in greatest need. You have spent your career looking at what the impacts of abuse, neglect, and household dysfunctionality and dysfunction are on how we respond in later life and in, in our life as a whole to, to other environmental and other factors that impact our health. How did you start this area of exploration? It wasn't intentional. It wasn't something that I sought out. It was a collision of a bunch of factors, as I think most things are. When I started a clinic in Bayview-Hunters Point, my mission was to address health disparities. So I was really focused on rates of asthma and reducing asthma hospitalizations. I was focused on childhood obesity and improving the quality of care, you know, raising the vaccination rate. We raised the vaccination rate among our population from 50% to between 95 and 97% among our patient population. But then the thing that I noticed about it was that for most of my patients, the thing that was most likely to kill them, it wasn't diphtheria. It wasn't pertussis. My patients weren't dying of, of lockjaw, right, of tetanus. The thing that I was seeing was that the vast majority of my patients had experienced major significant trauma. They parents who had mental illness, who had substance dependence, who were witnessing violence at home, witnessing uh, domestic abuse. And then I could see the way that it was manifest in their health, right? So in addition to being a pediatrician and training in medicine, I also did a master's in public health before I did my residency. And one of the things that they teach you in public health school is to notice patterns. So in medical school, you're really good at treating the one individual. And then in public health school, what they teach you is that if you see that one individual and it's repeated a hundred times, that you have to go to the source and understand what's driving it. And so when I saw situations like three girls in a household, terrible, terrible asthma. And we're throwing the kitchen sink at them, lots of different asthma medications, all of this stuff. And then they have a major disruption in their household and they go into foster care placement with a relative. And for the next year, they are getting, are with someone who's safe and stable and loving and nurturing and reliable. And then all of a sudden I'm seeing their asthma's getting way better. We're backing down off the medications, like all of this stuff. And it's not just about how clean and tidy the house is and air quality and all that kind of stuff. Literally, as I'm tracking this, and not just with this family, but with other families as well, it's like, oh, there's a difference in their biology when these children are in these safe and nurturing environments. And so 
that piece for me was to be able to witness that and see it over and over again in my clinical practice really turned me on to diving into the science around this. In adverse childhood experiences, the sound of a gunshot triggering a cortisol release. I was stunned to to realize that these kind of get embedded in our DNA, like they're, they're not just a one-time occurrence that happens to us, but they get passed down generationally. It kind of blew my mind too when I first read that science to understand how our environments shape the way that our DNA is read and transcribed, how it alters our epigenetic regulation in a way that affects our health throughout our lifetimes and then can be passed down to the next generation. And at first, when you think about it, it's a little bit shocking. But then if you think about it a little bit more, of course, it makes total sense because you don't want your survival to be based on when you have a genetic mutation that gives you some ability to respond to your environment. It makes all the sense in the world that there are some shortcuts that allow us to biologically adapt to our environment in a more rapid fashion. And then it also explains a lot of what we see in the world. Given all the confluence of these different strands that that you've been working on, Nadine, for instance, you have kids who are growing up with parents who are incarcerated that leads to them having worse health outcomes, and then it passes to their children. So when we think about the impacts of just that one very significant attribute of systemic racism and its impact on health, it's huge. Yeah, it's massive. When we start looking at the science and we start understanding the ways in which these factors um, impact health, we start to see the magnitude of the impact. When people look at the, the issue of mass incarceration, oftentimes we don't think about the health impact of all of those individuals' children and families that are generated by the institution. When we think about these policies are literally leading to increases in heart disease and stroke and diabetes, this issue of racial justice becomes so important. It adds another level that I think that many people haven't thought about. How do we help people A, understand these triggers, what they are and how to reduce them, and then to the extent that they are present how we help, uh, especially the young people, work through them. First, you want to prevent stuff from happening in the first place. That's like primary prevention. The second thing is that you want to do early identification and intervene early. Because everybody knows that if you identify cancer at stage one, it's way better than if you identify cancer at stage four. And then the third piece is once you've identified it and you, and you know, someone has symptoms, doing a really good job of treating it and what are the best treatments to get the best outcomes. So when we look at what's happened around adverse childhood experiences, I think that a lot of the efforts to date have been focused on prevention, which is huge and very, very important. 
But the problem is that that's largely been to the exclusion of the second and the third piece. And the reason that these other two are so important is because once you've experienced trauma, once you've experienced adverse childhood experiences and you have this biological response, the toxic stress response, which is the overactivity of the biological stress response, there's a couple of things that are really important. Number one, especially for young people, many, many young people, and especially this again plays out through a racial lens, is that if you are a 14-year-old boy and you're sitting in class and you are showing symptoms of an overactive stress response, you're showing symptoms of having a prefrontal cortex, right? This is the part of the brain that's responsible for executive functioning and judgment and impulse control, that you have impairment of that prefrontal cortex, which is part of the toxic stress response. The number of young people that I've seen in my clinic over the years who have been told that they're just bad kids, they've been told that they're the problem, especially if they're black and brown. To be able to recognize and saying, you know what, you're not the problem. The problem is the fact that what has happened to you over your life, your body is having the predictable and almost normal biological response. Like this is what happens when people experience high doses of adversity. You're experiencing biological response. And the number one reaction that I get from my patients when I say that is, oh, you mean I'm not crazy? So there are all these folks out there who are thinking that they're crazy, that they're the problem. And one of the important things about doing doing this routine screening, doing early detection and early intervention is to change that narrative, to have people understand, oh, no, this is a biological process. But the other myth that's out there is that there's nothing that we could do about it. And that's absolutely false because once people understand, that's just an overactive stress response. We can arm people with tools about how to recognize and respond to an overactive stress response, doing things like meditation, you know, folks all across the board, recognizing the health benefits and that actually meditation helps to regulate an overactive stress response. That piece is really important. Exercise, really important to help to reduce stress hormones and actually replace the harmful hormones with healthy hormones like endorphins. Nadine, if there was one element that you would want to highlight um, when it comes to tackling toxic stress, what would it be? Having people recognize that the single most important antidote to an overactive stress response is healing relationships. One teenager that I worked with you know, we were talking about all this stuff and he, he could just call it out. He could name all the people in his life that activated his stress response, including many of the members of his family. But what was powerful was that he could also name the people in his life who did the opposite and then just have mm. those strategies on how to double down on those nurturing relationships. And they, those nurturing relationships literally change our biology, like just the same way that mm. trauma and adversity change our biology in ways that are d damaging, nurturing relationships, safe and stable relationships change our biology in ways that are protective and healing. 
And so that's powerful. I think people need to know that. Yeah. That's incredible. I really love what you were just saying that we can heal. Yeah. Because I think we often just focus on the, the negative part of that equation. How do you create those interventions that are positive and nurturing? Uh, short answer is that everybody has to do it. If you look at the scope of the problem, it's overwhelming and it feels like you're trying to boil the ocean. And then, you know, I recognized that I obviously can't do all of this. So what can I do? And I was like, you know what? I bet you that if I raise my voice and raise awareness about this issue, that there are going to be enough people who want to be part of the solution that we can actually change things. And that's absolutely what we've seen. When we think about where we were 10 years ago versus where we are today, the number of schools that are doing some type of trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive training, programming approaches in this work is dramatically higher than it was 10 years ago. So you set a goal of halving toxic stress in one generation. How are we going to get that done? From my standpoint, it's it's a combination of factors. I'm an optimist, so I always have that hopefulness and that belief that we can be the change. But it's not a wish, right? Like it has to come with strategy. Uh, We're raising awareness. And then what are we asking people to do? What's the role of the educational sector? Our educators spend at least eight hours a day or did before COVID-19 with our kids. And so if we look at the science and we say safe, stable and nurturing relationships and environments are healing, you know, people want to say, oh, well, how are you going to deal with ACEs? Just as a reminder, ACEs are adverse childhood experiences or toxic shock. Nadine, what what are the key intervention points um, in the home environment? You can't go into someone's house and tell the parents if they can use substances or not, or if there's going to be domestic violence or not, or you can't do that. There's a lot that you can do on the home front. If we know that the science shows us that safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments are healing, and we know that most kids are spending eight hours a day, at least in school, then how about we make these educational settings instead of being the place where there's added shame and blame and punitive practices against these kids when they show symptoms of toxic stress? How about we train educators and give them tools to be start asking these questions of what's going on with these kids and how do we create educational environments that are healing. I think that is one of the most important things that we can do to be addressing the issue of toxic stress in our society. And so that feels really powerful. I have worked with a lot of families in my day and I've worked with families who have used all kinds of substances in front of their kids, who have physically harmed their kids, who have had all kinds of violence. I've had patients who have said to me, oh, you know, doc, I had to commit a homicide. And I was like, hmm, tell me more about that. <laughs> that was, I mean, it's just shocking. It's very different from, from my own day-to-day experience. But what's fascinating about it 
is that unless someone is a true sociopath, which is extraordinarily rare, uh, what I witnessed was that most parents who even were harming their kids, what they were doing almost universally was acting out the experiences that they themselves had. So for example, their child is having some behavior or acting out or doing something in a way that the parents find worrisome or scary. And you have a parent who has an overactive stress response. So they then are not having good impulse control. They're not having good problem-solving skills. They go back to how they were raised and how things were handled in their household, and then they repeat it with the next generation. What happens when you talk to parents about not only their toxic stress, but their their reaction and, and kind of how it exists in, in the home? The minute the parent goes there, the first thing that they say is, I don't want to hand that down to my kids. I don't want to repeat mm. that for my kids. And so what I've seen time and time again is parents willing to do for their children what they were not able to do for themselves, which is be open to get access to that help. It's pretty powerful. Especially with COVID, but even before that, the the trust in science and doctors has gone down to the point that last week there was a New York Times article about even if there was a COVID vaccine, 40% of Americans wouldn't take it. They just don't trust medicine or science anymore. How do we rebuild faith and trust in, in the institutions of science? We're learning more and more in medicine about how important relationships are. I will say for myself, my own doctor, I love my doctor. He is phenomenal. He's pretty amazing. Having been a pediatrician in practice for a decade and a half before coming into this role, so much of it is is about that connection and really listening to our patients and making sure that we're responding to the things that are the biggest challenges for them and doing that shared decision making, connecting to that art of healing, which is which is what medicine is all about. At the same time, I think that we have to be really clear that science is kind of under attack right now, right? Like there's there's like an open narrative being promoted in certain places where we don't have to listen to science. That, oh, that's what the scientists say, but that's not real or relevant or true. And those narratives are frankly incredibly dangerous. Countering those narratives requires a much broader coalition of folks than just scientists or doctors. That's much more of a, a broader public conversation. Thank you for highlighting these issues. And most importantly, that healing is possible and not only possible, but needed. Thank you so much, Nadine. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. A huge thank you to California Surgeon General Nadine Burke-Harris for talking with us today. Nadine's groundbreaking work helps us see how toxic shock can be as dangerous to our health as poisonous sources of chemical pollution. Better screening of adverse childhood experiences is a critical first step to demystifying what is a common sense causal relationship. If you see a parent getting shot, 
It's going to affect your behavior and your life until you're able to heal. Healing is central to our place on the planet at this time. Only by recognizing the damage that we do to each other, the damage that we have inflicted on the earth, and the damage that the pandemic is exposing us to, can we begin the process of healing. As Nadine has demonstrated with Toxic Shock, the journey to becoming healthy again is possible. It takes focus, patience, compassion, and can only be done when we have acknowledged the prognosis. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld. Please take care of yourself and have a great week. Thank you.